Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9, 1 through 5. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, says the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray to this almighty, sovereign, holy God. Lord, we come into your presence humbly, expectantly, submitting ourselves to you, acknowledging that you, O oh God, are our king. You rule over the heavens and the earth. There is none like you. You will accomplish your purposes. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. It's always exciting for me to move into a new section of Romans. I think it's, you know, I, I didn't plan this out. I'm not that gifted or skilled of a planner to plan out that we would start the new year by looking at God's sovereignty over all the earth. But what a way to begin. The, the entire year of 2024, we're going to be in, in, in chapters 9 through 11, is my guess. The year of 2024 is going to be about God's sovereignty over the earth. Romans 9 through 11 can be summed up as God's sovereignty in election. Romans 1 through 3, we began. That's Paul's treatise on sin. He laid the foundation that we are all sinners and hopelessly lost. And if God didn't act, then we'd be doomed. And Romans 4 and 5 focus on God's grace in our salvation. We were lost, but God did something about it. God intervened on our behalf. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6 through 8 focused on the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. For those who have been justified by faith, who have been saved by faith, made righteous with God by faith, then begins the process of the Holy Spirit working in our lives of making us holy indeed. Culminating with those soul-anchoring words of Romans 8, 37 through 39, where Paul said, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am unashamed of God's sovereignty. It is beautiful to me. It serves as the very basis on which we can speak those comforting words of Romans chapter 8 so confidently. I am sure. How can you be sure? Because it is God who works. Not you. But God. If, if, if Christ let you go, you would fall. But praise be to God, Christ will not allow you to fall. He holds me fast. God's sovereignty is our assurance and God's sovereignty is his glory. I love the sovereignty of God, and my hope is that you also will love 
the sovereignty of God. It is plainly taught throughout Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, but Romans 9 is perhaps the bastion of defense of God's sovereignty in election in Scripture. Now listen, if all you do with Romans 9 through 11 is come in here and, and listen to me read a few verses a week, you're going to be lost in the sauce. You need to pour over these three chapters routinely. Perhaps it should be your goal in 2024 to read 9 through 11 every week for the year 2024. That you immerse yourself in this. Listen, it was only about 15 years ago that I was arguing against God's sovereignty in election. And as I yield to the scripture, as I yield to the Holy Spirit, and as he robs me of self-delusion, I submit to God's sovereignty, and I find it beautiful. Maybe you wrestle with this. I get that. I encourage you to read and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you through his word, Romans 9 through 11, over and over and over again. And come into this place ready to hear from his word. Paul concludes chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. What we, about, what we are about to explore is deep. And if you remain on the surface, you're going to miss so much. Explore with me. Dive deep with me. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You guys ready to begin? Romans 9, 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What a high Christology. What a beautiful way to, to begin 2024. Am I right? Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying that he's worked through this with the Lord. What he's about to tell us in Romans chapter 9 through 11, he has worked through with the Lord. His conscience bears him witness that he has a clear conscience. The Holy Spirit bears him witness that he has a clear conscience. What he's about to say, this hard truth, because it is hard truth. And what he's about to say does not come from a place of anti-Semitism, hatred, animosity, jealousy, anger, but rather from love. Which is a great reminder for us to remember what I spoke last week. Before you say that hard truth to another person or about another person, you need to wrestle with the Holy Spirit and make sure that your conscience is clear before you speak that hard truth. You're getting ready to take a speck out of someone's eye, speak the truth into someone else's life, make sure that plank is removed from your own. 
Paul has removed the, spe- removed the plank. He's, he's checked his heart. He's checked his conscience. And he's, he's calling the Holy Spirit to witness for him. To testify for him that his conscience is clear. And what is this truth in Christ to which the Spirit bears witness? Paul said in verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The issue that he's addressing here in verses 9 through 11 is Israel's rejection of her Messiah. Or his Messiah. I don't know how the nation of Israel is referred to. Israel's rejection of the Messiah. The fact that his own kinsmen rejects the, uh, reject the gospel was not for Paul a, a matter of theological explanation. Israel's rejection of Messiah was not something that Paul hoped would be coldly debated in seminary classrooms. This caused Paul deep anguish that his brothers would reject their Messiah. It's not just a theological debate. This is, this, this is, a, this is a guidepost for us as we walk through Romans 9 through 11. This is not academic. It's not merely theological. Paul was anguished that the Jews rejected their Messiah. He continues in verse three, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He hated that they had been cut off from Christ. He hated that. They were his own flesh and blood, his kin. Perhaps you have kin that reject the gospel. You know the unceasing anguish. You lose sleep over this. You want so badly for your loved ones to be saved. Theirs is, you're not gonna enter into a theological debate This is real for you. This is sincere for you. This is your heart's desire that your loved one would be saved. That they, like you, would see the glorious Christ and they would fall on their knees before him and receive his grace and submit to him as Lord. You know Paul's anguish. Far from hating the Jews, Paul wished that he could be cut off instead of them. In saying that, he echoes the sentiment of Moses in the wilderness who told the Lord that he wished that the Lord would remove his name from his book if he would not forgive the sins of the people of Israel for their idolatry with the golden calf. Better to be cut off myself than that your people be cut off. That was Moses' heart, and, and that is Paul's heart. But that's not how it works. And I, I know that Paul knows that, and, and Moses, I think, knew that. That's not how it works. God doesn't take your, your salvation and give it to someone else. That's not how it works. But we should notice the heart of these men we should notice the sentiment. They had, they had deep concern for the sake of their lost brothers. Paul's concern for Israel was intense and sincere. He longed that his brothers would come to know Christ. This wasn't cold theology. He was desperate that his loved ones would be saved. He was even willing to say out loud and even willing to have it recorded, I wish, or I could wish, 
that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now, I'm, I'm sure that there's not much that you and I would refuse to do for the sake of our brother's salvation. If you were told, if you do this, then your loved ones, your brothers would be saved. I think, I think, I think we would walk through the Saharan desert. I think we would amputate an arm. I think that we would, we would swim the ocean. I think we would get on, a, on an airplane and we would move our entire lives to the nations to go get our brothers and sisters that we don't even know yet. But I'm not sure that I could even vocalize the thought. Let me be accursed so that my brother would be saved. That word accursed is, is, is the Greek word anathema. He used the same words against the false teachers in Galatians when he said, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned is the word. Completely destroyed. The concept of, of being accursed comes from the conquest of Canaan where God forbade that any single Canaanite would be spared, they or their goods, but rather that they would be completely destroyed. And Paul said that he could wish that he was accursed, that he was completely destroyed for the sake of his brothers. I don't know about you, but that convicts me. Is that how you feel about your loved ones and neighbors who reject the gospel? Is that how you feel about unreached people groups? I was just recently at the Cross Conference in Louisville where David Platt put up a map on the screen and he informed us that there are more unreached people in the world today than ever before in the history of mankind, at least since the gospel. More unreached people, 3.2 billion people will be born and live their entire life and they will die and they will not only not hear the gospel, they will never meet a Christian. Does that bother you? Jacob, I think you have a slide back there of one of our missionaries, the Collins. We can say his name. Uh, it's publicly known, Ben and Susie Collins. They're in central Thailand. There is no church in that region but theirs. How many churches did you pass on your way to Wildwood? There is no church in their region but theirs. They alone. They have given their life. They have said, yes, Lord, we will move from the reached peoples of America and we will go to the unreached peoples of Thailand. And we will stay there until you call us home. And we will work in the gospel. And we will proclaim and we will bring our brothers and sisters in Christ in. And that's what they're doing. And the gospel is effective and powerful. And right here, just recently, we see that they've baptized three people. That little church of, I don't know, 15, just added three new believers. People who, if, if the Collins 
did not hear at CrossCon 19. Am I right, Andy? If they didn't hear that the nations need the gospel, then no one in that region would ever hear the gospel. How will they hear unless they have been sent? How will they hear unless they've been sent? Praise the Lord for Ben and Susie Collins. But the fight is not theirs alone. The fight is yours and mine. Is that your heart? Lord, cut me off. Curse me. Let me be anathema for the sake of my brothers. That convicts, right? We pray for Israel's salvation. We pray for the lost people around the world. But no one knew the struggle like Paul did. Remember, remember that Paul was a gospel-denying Israelite. He was a gospel rejecter. He persecuted the church. He, he put his approval, he, he, threw his, he threw his cloak down in approval at the stoning of Stephen. And he was zealously going to persecute the, tr- the church on the road to Damascus. He was going to Damascus to arrest and to beat. And who knows? Until he was arrested by Jesus Christ. He knew what it was to be an Israelite and reject Messiah. And so he knew how tragically ironic it was that the Israelites would reject him. And Paul underscores why it's so tragically ironic here in verses 4 and 5. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriots, uh, the patriots, the patriarchs. To be an Israelite meant to be the people of God. There's so many things that are implied in that one term, and I want you to notice that he uses the term Israelite rather than Jew. Jew was a term given to them by outsiders, and it was not their preferred term. Israelite, on the other hand, implied much. First of all, the adoption. The Israelites were adopted as sons. In Exodus 4.22, the Lord told Moses to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. In Deuteronomy 131, the Lord compares his deliverance of Israel in the Exodus as a man carrying his son. He carried the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness like a man carries his son. In Deuteronomy 14.1, he says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. Israel was given the adoption as sons, and it pained Paul that they would tragically miss the privilege of knowing the Son of God and receive his salvation. Theirs was also the glory, which likely refers to the Shekinah glory that led them through the wilderness in a cloud by day and fire by night and came to fill the tabernacle in the wilderness and ultimately the, t- the, the temple that Solomon built. The Greek word for glory is doxa. When we sing the doxology, we sing of the glory of God. We give glory to God. That is what worship is. That is why we gather together. There are three things that we gather to do. I'm sure there's more, but at least three. In in order of priority. One, we gather to glorify our God. We, We don't, worship is not about singing a song. That's why he's not a a song director, he's a worship pastor. He's leading us in worship of the one true living God. Jesus is king. 
And when we enter into this building, we collectively agree that Jesus is king. And we give God glory. If you come in here and you're not giving God glory, the audacity of that. Rather that you stay out than that you come in and, and withhold glory from God. Who knows that he doesn't send hailstones to destroy this building because you withhold your glory. You withhold glory from him. And he would be right to do so. Then we come to submit to God's word. God's word is authoritative, inerrant, inspired. We love it and we live it. Amen? This is what drives Wildwood Church. Jesus is king and his word is alive. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and uh, between bone and marrow, between soul and spirit. We submit to the word of God. We don't change the word of God. We don't ignore the word of God. We submit to the word of God. It is a light to our path. And then we provoke one another to love and good works. Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one another up or provoke. My job is chief provocateur in your life. Amen. Provoke. Stir up. You know what happens? You know what happens uh, with dirt and water? It settles to the bottom. In your life, in my life, we're gonna get comfortable. And we settle, and it's easy. We need someone to stir it up. And that's what every Sunday ought to be. And every Wednesday night ought to be that way. And every connect group ought to be that way. And every triad meeting ought to be that way. And every accountability relationship we have ought to be that way. Stir up, provoke. If you don't leave here sometimes mad at me, I'm doing it wrong. I don't think there's any chance that that happens. They were the recipients of the covenants, the covenants of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. This is a reminder that the covenant promises that we receive do not come from Gentiles. We aren't standing on the covenants made to the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Greeks, the Romans, the Danes, the Brits, the Americans. Theirs was the giving of the law. It was through Moses on Mount Sinai that we have the first five books of the Bible. This is how we know the character of God, the creation of the world, the purpose of life, and the depth of our sin. They received the worship. It is because of Israel that we know how to worship the one true living king. R.C. Sproul says our instructions about how to bring praise sacrifices to God in corporate worship did not come to us through Greeks or Romans. The principles of worship that shape our devotion were born in Israel. They received the promises. It is the promises that God made to Israel that we treasure and upon which we stand in hope of eternal life. The concept that God is a promise-keeping God cannot be overstated. We cannot remember that too frequently. That God is a promise-keeping God. It is because he sent Jesus to Israel that we can be confident that God is a promise-keeping God. That the promises that he made to us that we hope in, that he will fulfill. And verse five begins, to them belong the patriarchs. Again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. These are the flawed men that God used to establish the human foundations of Israel. It was through Abraham's offspring that the nations are blessed. And his name is Jesus. All of these privileges belong to the Israelites, but notice a subtle shift here. Paul says, he came from their race according to the flesh, but the Christ does not belong to Israel. Jesus was born of an Israelite woman. 
according to the flesh, biologically, he was born an Israelite. When Luke, who traveled with Paul, Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, when Luke, the physician, traveled with Paul, he wrote the lineage of Jesus in his gospel. He went from Mary's father's line back to David through Nathan rather than Solomon. And he continued beyond Abraham, where Matthew stopped. He goes all the way back to Adam. Because Jesus came from their race, but Jesus came for all who believe in him and receive his salvation for the Jew first and also the Greek. That is what is implied when Paul says he is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. Jesus is the rescuer. He is the one that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, who would crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent would bruise his heel. But more than that, Jesus is God over all, blessed forever. What a high Christology. Jesus Christ is God over all, blessed forever. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul said in Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And the author of Hebrews 1, or the author of Hebrews said in 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Jesus now? He is seated at the right hand of God on the throne of majesty, reigning as king of the universe. And he is head of this church. And he is Lord of my life. Is he Lord of yours? Jesus knew that he was God. And he demonstrated that confidence when he forgave people of their sins. People argue Jesus never claimed to be God. That is a dumb argument. It is stupid. And you should tell people that they are foolish for believing that. Jesus was crucified with the charge of blasphemy, making himself equal to God. That's what the Jews hated about him. He forgave people's sins. He allowed people to worship him. And he made the claim that a person's response to him determined where they would spend eternity. It is a delusion to believe that Jesus never claimed to be God or that he didn't know that he was God. And because he's God, Paul says he is Christ over all. That is, Christ is preeminent. Colossians 1, the next highest Christology, or maybe an even higher Christology than this. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything. In everything he might be preeminent. Not just in how this church works, but in every decision that you make in your life. That he might be preeminent. He is overall. How dare us to think, not me. I don't owe you an answer. I don't need to ask your permission. I don't care what you want me to do with my life. Christ is over all. What a blessing to proclaim his preeminence in this church. 
may it continue to be proclaimed until Jesus comes back. Paul loved the Jews with a deep and earnest heart. Paul burned for them. He hurt for them. He longed for them to know their Messiah. And this is important for Paul to express here because what follows in chapter 9 is some of the most difficult and some of the most God-glorifying words in all of Scripture. And Paul wanted to make it clear that this was far from hatred for the Jews. He deeply hurt for their sake, for the sake of his brothers. He concluded this kind of stream of thought here in Romans 10.1. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. How difficult it must have been for the apostle to the Gentiles not to write the Jews off completely and say, let the blood be on their own heads. It's incredibly difficult to be hurt by people, to be rejected by them, and to still love them in Christ. And indeed, to love them to Christ. Paul was rejected by his own people. And yet his heart was that they would be saved. That the Lord would give them forgiveness of sin. Paul would say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do, just as Jesus did who, by the way, actually fulfilled this exchange of curse for righteousness on the cross. Jesus did that for you. Jesus actually became the curse and suffered the wrath of God so that you, sinner, would be righteous, would be saved. Paul gives us an example here of how we ought to love people. We ought to have a deep sympathy for the lost. We ought to have an anguish in our heart for those who have hurt us, for those who have mocked us, for those who have rejected us, and indeed, those who would harm us and even kill us for the sake of the gospel. We ought to burn with zeal that the glory of God would cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the seas. I wonder who in your life your heart breaks for. I wonder for whom you could wish that God would cut you off and give your salvation in exchange for theirs. The Lord and the Apostle Paul, they resonate with you. Poetically, the psalmist records in Psalm 56, 8, you put my tears in your bottle. I don't know what that means. But what I do know is that the Lord knows every tear that falls, every heart that breaks, because someone in your life rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let those tears fall. Bring that heart to the Father, for He alone can save. Paul's final word in this doxology statement, I'm sorry, excuse me, Paul's final word in this thought here is a doxological statement, amen. You ever wonder what you're saying when you say amen? Something we do here, I I ask you amen, and you say amen, like what are you saying? You ever wonder that? What am I saying? Let it be so. We agree. What you said is true. We're with you in that. That's right. 
Let's practice. Jesus Christ is God over all forever. Amen? Amen. Listen, some people think, I don't know, maybe it's disruptive for you to vocalize amen. I love it. It fires me up. It lets me know that you're resonating with what I'm saying. That you agree that this is right. That it's true. So don't be afraid to to shout amen. Even if I don't ask you to. I love it. I love it. Because it's saying we're with you. Yes, what you said is true. It's right. Let it be so. God, Jesus is God forever over all. Amen? Amen. And it is our joy. I love it. It is our joy. It is our joy and our delightful duty to ensure that all the nations hear this Jesus who is God over all. It is our pleasure to take the good news of Jesus Christ to every tribe and tongue on the planet. Lord, would you fill us with a kind of sincere love for the lost that Paul felt for his kinsmen? Lord, may we live as if we believe what is written on the other side of this wall. Every member a missionary, taking the gospel across the street and around the world. That, that is not to reduce the sacrifice of a missionary, but rather to elevate it what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, that you and I would live functionally and think and prioritize the very same way that Ben and Susie Collins live and think and prioritize. And maybe you will go. You know that is our vision. We believe that this is what the Lord wants us to do is to raise up 50 of our own people. Who will be the first? Who will be the first? Perhaps we won't see it until some children grow up having heard this over and over and over again. Or perhaps there will be some retired couple that says, you know what? I don't even have to fundraise because what I make in retirement, I can move to Thailand and go be part of a church plant like Ben and Susie Collins and I don't even need to ask the church for money. I just need their blessing. I just need their equipping. I just need their affirmation. I just need to be sent. But because of my career that is now over, I have everything that I need to go to the nations. Perhaps a retired couple will set the example. We'll hear from Jesus. And we'll be filled with zeal for the lost. May we say with the Apostle Paul, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. You know, thankfully, that's, while that's a sincere sentiment and we all ought to think that way, thankfully, that's not how it works. Thankfully, we don't have to give up our salvation. This is really good news, bud. We don't have to give up our salvation for someone else's. Salvation comes by faith. Salvation comes by believing the gospel. Salvation is available to all who would believe, who all, to all who would repent and turn and follow Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. But may that sentiment, Lord, if the only way that these people could be saved was that I give up mine, may it be so. May that sentiment, may that 
deep, sincere heart for lost people and for the nations. Govern your life and mine. Today, Jesus invites you, whether you are Jew or Gentile, to come to him by faith and to receive his grace and the forgiveness of your sin and be saved. Jesus on the cross bore your sin, suffered in your place, died for you, and rose again on the third day, securing for you eternal life. Does the reality of eternal life grip you? Or or is this life the highest reality for you? As long as this life is your highest reality, you will protect it. And Jesus says, whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We come now to communion. Communion is a time of remembrance, of reflection. It's a time that Paul says that we should examine our hearts. Communion is for Christians, for believers. Communion is for those who who say, Jesus, I believe. And Jesus, you are king. You are Lord. Communion is for disciples of Jesus Christ. So the very first examination of your heart should be, do I believe the gospel? Do I believe that Jesus is preeminent? Do I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to give me, the sinner, eternal life? Do I believe that? That's the first thing. And and if you can't say yes, then I want you to say yes now. If you look back in your life and say, "I, I didn't believe this yesterday, I didn't believe this this morning, but I believe it now, amen. Repent and believe the gospel and join with us. But if not, then just put the cup down. And ask the Lord to help. Help you believe. For those that say, yes, I believe the gospel. Jesus is my Lord. Is he? Is he your Lord? That's the next question. Do I live this way? Is my life oriented around the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do I love Jesus? Do I love his church? Do I give glory to God with my life? When we get to chapter 12, maybe in a year, year and a half, two years, five years, we're going to see that, that the call, that, the, that spiritual worship is not just singing songs on Sunday morning, but is laying down our lives as living sacrifices. God, do I worship you? That's the second question. As you process that during this song, I invite you to ask the Lord, where should I go? Where should I go? Moline, Coal Valley, Bettendorf, Sterling, Dixon, Geneseo, Kelowna, Coal Valley, Rapid City, Port Byron, Erie, Fulton, Davenport, DeWitt. Those are, those are the cities that I know that our people are coming from. Lord, where should I go? My elementary school, where I serve as a teacher or an administrator, 
police department. John Deere. Wherever I work, wherever I go, Lord, where should I go? What should I do? Or maybe the Lord says, move out of the green and into the red. Uzbekistan. Kazakhstan. Thailand. North Korea. China. Lord, where should I go? My life is about taking the gospel across the street and around the world. Where do you want me to go? You are preeminent. And I will live for your glory. Jesus, we thank you for grace. We thank you, Lord, for mercy and love. We thank you for Jesus. He is preeminent in our lives. May that be so. Fill us, Lord, with a zeal that your glory cover the face of the earth like the water covers the seas. In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.